You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. Well, welcome, everybody. If we haven't met, my name is Kenny. And it's wonderful to have you all here, some wonderful faces that are familiar and some new faces as well. So thank you for joining our family today in worship. Um, if you would, uh, let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, so, so much for all that you have done for us this week. We thank you for the work that you have called us to and, and that we've enjoyed and uh, toiled in this week. We also thank you for the rest that we have uh, been able to enjoy with one another. As we read from your word today, would we receive it well? Uh, would you guide us and lead us? Jesus, in your strength and kindness, would you call us towards repentance this afternoon? Uh, and in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I maybe said morning in that prayer. Now that I'm thinking backwards, but we're all on a journey these past couple of weeks, getting used to the new language. So uh, tonight, we are carrying forward in the story of Jesus as told by Mark. And so we are in Mark chapter 12. This week I was reading through this passage and I was reminded of the fact that theology is all around us in our culture. This is something we talked about a couple of weeks ago if you were at our first Friday formation on art and faith, how God is revealed uh, through culture in some unique ways and we can learn about him and his world uh, through it. So I was reminded this week of a wonderful TV series that I've enjoyed this year called Severance. Anyone watched it? I know Cammie's mom up here in the front has watched it because I made her. Um, it's a good show. It's very intense, just as a warning. But it's a, it's a wonderfully thoughtful show, and it asks this question, what happens to us if our work and our identity are disconnected? What happens to us if the person we are in our work and the person we are at home are totally severed between the two? And it's really interesting. I don't want to spoil anything. Um, again, if you are down with a really intense show, uh, check it out. I was thinking about how to describe it, and I think it's a blend of The Office and Get Out. So somewhere in between those two, really, it, I think that's a, a good description. But anyway, so it asks this question, what happens when our uh, job or our work is totally disconnected from our identity? And so you're tracking with these characters through most of the series, and you don't know almost anything about who they really are. All you see is their work life. And really, in fact, that's all they know about themselves, too. They don't know anything about themselves outside of work. And you get to this climax towards the end of the series, again, no major spoilers, uh, where you start to see these characters learn who they are. And it's really, really intense. I've said that word four times. But for a brief time, you, you watch the characters take a journey, bridging the two worlds between their work and their identity. And you see the same question answered in each character's life. Who is it that is making these decisions that governs what I'm doing in my work. Really, they're asking this question, who is it that's ruling my life? And they all get to experience and learn that at the same time. 
Well, I think that's a question that Jesus, through the last couple of chapters of Mark that we've been in, has been gearing up to answer. Who is it that is ruling our collective lives? Who is it that is ruling our world? And in Mark 11, which, going back a little bit, um, Jesus shows up on the scene in Jerusalem, and he declares his authority over all things. He, he shows up in the triumphal entry, uh, riding on a colt into the capital of God's people. He's expressing his authority in a unique way over God's people. And then he enters the temple courts, and he cleanses the temple with an angry righteousness and says, this is idolatry, right? And so he expresses his authority over that. And then straight up at the end of Mark 11, the teachers and rulers of the day ask him this question, who gives you authority to do these things? So in Mark 11, which is, is kind of setting the stage for Mark 12, his authority is being both established and questioned as he goes through this part of the story. But then we get to Mark 12, and he continues to answer these questions in parables, some really, again, very intense parables. But he starts to flip the switch a little bit and express what his authority means for us and what we are to do with the fact that he is ruling as our king. And so what we're going to see this afternoon is that Jesus takes questions from rulers and teachers, Pharisees and Sadducees, and he takes them as an opportunity to confront three main cultural idols of first century Israel. Um, and I think they may be still here today. And those three are political allegiance, religious virtue, and wealth. And he goes straight at those three. Now, Jesus is strong and Jesus is kind in his words to us. And his hope is that as we hear these words, um, they would lead us towards repentance. So that's where we're going to be this afternoon. I don't mean to warn you. I don't mean to put up your guard. But that's where we're going to be exploring is what Jesus has to say to those three cultural idols. So if you would read with me, uh, we're going to be in Mark 12, starting in verse 13. Mark says this. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now some of you in here are thinking, nice, Charlie. You left town and left this passage to Kenny. Good job. It's a lot of fun. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. Now, you may have heard this passage taught if you've been around the church for a while in multiple different ways and interpreted and applied to our lives across the whole spectrum. Maybe you've heard it applied to our ethic of uh, engaging in politics and, and maybe on how to understand the separation between church and state. Maybe you've heard it applied to paying taxes and budgeting and all these things that we engage with in our world. But I think that um, the real question that Jesus is getting at here is bigger than any of those individual topics. 
and those deserve being wrestled with and, and being searched through Scripture for. But I think the, G, the question that Jesus is really asking or being asked is who should we serve? Should we pay our taxes to Caesar or shouldn't we? And the reason they're asking this question is because, uh, as is described by Mark, on the coin, on the denarius, is the image of Caesar. And Jewish law was clear that you should not carve an image, especially an image of a king other than God, right? That's, a, in a way, an act of worship, an act of idolatry. And so these teachers are coming at him and saying, so if we pay taxes, aren't we being idolatrous? But the rub is, if he says, yeah, don't pay taxes, then what he's saying in a different perspective is he's inciting a riot or a revolution against the Roman Empire. And so really what they're trying to catch him in is either answer that they see as a possibility or catch him in time that is punishable by death on either side, whether it's a crime against the Jewish law or a crime against the Roman rulers. And so that's the tension here where they ask this question, where it says they're trying to trap him. And the funny thing is, like, I love Mark because he just says it straight up at the beginning. He makes their motivations known, but then he still tells us their little musing about teacher. You're so great. You're so wonderful. You do this. You love God, all this stuff. But Jesus sees right through it, and he knows what they are doing. And so they are asking Jesus, essentially, who are we to serve? And what Jesus is saying in his response is simple and bold, and it charts a third way through the question. Is he asking or is he telling them that the question doesn't matter and that they can serve both Caesar and God? That's not what he's saying, right? When he's saying pay, what to, see, what, pay to Caesar's what is Caesar's and pay to God what is God, he's not saying, oh, it doesn't matter. Just, you know, whoever's name is on it, go at it. He's not saying that. Is he saying that um, their social, political, cultural lives don't matter compared to their spiritual life? Is he minimizing the tax that they're paying and saying, that's physical. That doesn't really matter. What really matters is your spiritual life. That's not what he's saying either. Because if that's what he were to be saying, then the logical conclusion there would be that what we do in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our culture doesn't matter as followers of Jesus. And so he's not getting at that either. So what is it he really means? N.T. Wright has a really helpful little resource on this. And what he says is that Jesus is getting at the idea of allegiance, getting at the idea of allegiance. Who are we to be allegiant to? And he points out that the Pharisees and the Herodians might have heard Jesus' response with this tone in their context. Maybe it would have been Jesus saying, sure, like, pay the tax, pay this little coin to Caesar. This has his name and his image on it. But this coin means almost nothing in the eternal scope of God's story. Give to God what is God's, which is your life. All of who you are is God's. All that God has created in you and through you, or, or all he has created you to be, is his. And that's immeasurably more valuable than the denarius. And so what he's saying is there's a difference in value here in God's economy, right? That, 
the allegiance to God is what is valuable in this setting. So he's getting at a life of total allegiance to God above our own ethics, our own personality, politics, career goals, and so on. And that's tough, right? Like, what does that mean? Like, what is, how do you actually live that out where you are devoting your entire life to God, to Jesus as king? Well, we're in luck because the rest of the chapter tells us and explains how we are to live that out. So if you would continue reading with me in Mark 12, we're going to go down to verse 28. And again, so Jesus is enduring these questions. There's a question in between these two passages uh, prepared by the Sadducees about the resurrection and what our relationships will be like in the new creation. But then the questions continue. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as, as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So there's a couple of interesting things about this part of the story. First of all, the teacher that approaches Jesus, he's attracted to the debate, right? Mark points that out. There's a rigorous debate going on, and, and they're bouncing ideas off of each other. And Jesus is answering with really solid, logical responses. So it says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. He saw that Jesus had given a good answer, and so he wanted to get into the game. Like, I imagine this in um, first century Jewish teacher culture as kind of a fun exercise, right? Asking someone, what do you think is the most important commandment? Um, to translate it to my very less intellectually interesting life, it's like Marcus asking me who I think is the goat in basketball. Right, it's a fun exercise where they're simulating and asking a question and, and seeing how Jesus would respond. And, and you kind of notice he graded him. He said, yeah, well said, good answer. Um, but I think also it's not just the teacher asking him what is the greatest commandment. I think he's, getting, he's using that question to ask a deeper one, something about what is it that drives you, Jesus? What do you say is the ultimate authority in our lives? In our maybe current language, this is maybe the way that some of these questions might be asked. What drives you? Or maybe in a crisis, what do you hold to most closely? If given total freedom from responsibilities, what would you do in your life? If your house caught on fire, a classic, right? What would you say first? What in your life would be the hardest for you to lose? What is the first factor in your biggest decisions? And what is your life all about? These are big questions that get at the core of who we are and how we see the world. 
And I think that's kind of what the, the teacher of the law was asking at his core through the lens of biblical theology. What do you think is the biggest commandment or the greatest commandment? He's asking him, what do you think we are here for? What is the most important way to obey who God is? And so I want to uh, spend a little bit of time chatting with each other about maybe one of these questions that I just read off and see how we would answer these. Because, again, Jesus is not answering from a point of uh, trivia or a point of um, just an interesting debate. He is answering from the core of who he is and what he's here to do. So what I'd like you to do is split into groups of three to five, maybe. Uh, we do this often at Missio where we break into groups and uh, answer a simple question. And I'm going to ask you a big one. So that's what we're doing. I love it. Uh, and I want to ask you this question. I, I threw it in that list. What is the first factor in your biggest decisions? What is your, the first factor? What's prime in your life? When you're making a huge decision, a change of job, um, you know, moving, all these different things, what is the first factor? So if you would break with those groups, answer that question to one another, and then I'd love to hear how you responded. All right, so I'm curious, in, in one or two words, what is an answer that you shared or someone in your group shared? What is the, big, the first and biggest factor in a major decision in your life? Jesus, good, good. God's will, absolutely. Family? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think that's mine. Yeah. How much will it cost? A big one. What's the cost? Absolutely. Good. Yeah. Will it be difficult? Yeah. It's a good question, right? Because even if the answer is yes, you might still do it. But you want to know before you commit to it. That's good. Anyone else have anything to share? Yeah, yeah, the amount of risk. Would you say that you are risk averse? Yeah, yeah. What's up? Yeah. Mm. That's good. Yeah, I feel that. I feel that too. That's good. Yeah, these are all great answers. And it, we are all different people. And uh, the way that we think through decisions um, tends to be different. But I think what... Jesus is, is answering the question here is a similar one. Not the exact same one. I'm not pretending they're the same. But it's a similar one. It's a, it's a question of at your core, how do you answer this question? How do you go about life? What is the most important thing, uh, the most important commandment? Because remember, in, in this Jewish culture, this would have been the set of guidelines they lived by and memorized. Like this guy who... Uh, asked the question, he probably had all 613 uh, memorized. And so it's a conversation of which one do you see as the prime? What is the first one from which the rest of them flow? And Jesus' answer is wonderful um, and well thought out. It's, it's, it's uh, kind of like the, uh, the answer to the first question we talked about where it's like, man, that is so simple and so beautiful. But at its core, I think what the question would be asked if Jesus were to turn and ask it to us, he would be asking, who is your God? Who is it that you worship? 
Who is it that you serve? And that's why Jesus answers first with a statement of worship. He says, love the Lord your God with everything you have. And even before that, he states who God is. God is the one and only. He rules over all creation. So love him and serve him with everything. And then he talks about how we treat each other. So he starts first with who is God, and then he answers, what are we to do about it? And that's where all Christian morality flows from. First, from the identity of who God is, and then from the question of what do we do? And if you know the four Gs, there's a couple more in there too. So if you remove allegiance to the one true God from your ethical code, things get wonky, right? Like if in their little huddle of teachers of the law, they, someone answered a different uh, law, I'm sure the logical extension in that conversation would be like, well, okay, so if that was our prime motive, what does that mean for our life? And you tra track it down. And that's the beauty of Jesus's answer is he answered, love the Lord your God with all you have because God is overall and in all. The rest of the commandments flow from that idea, who is God? Now, as a side note, the response from the teacher is really interesting. I wonder what he, our uh, application of this would be because he says, you're right, you answered correctly. And if that's the case, then all burnt offerings and sacrifices mean nothing if we don't love God with all that we have. But I wonder for us as missio, and this is a question, I'll just leave it out there. What is our burnt offerings and sacrifices? What is the thing that maybe we tend to put as our prime objective over loving God with all we have? So that's the greatest commandment. And it sets up this last and simple story. If you are tracking with me, the first story started with a very vague but beautiful answer about paying taxes. And then the second story starts to get to some more specific direction. And now we're going to read an example of this principle of total allegiance to God. And this is the story of the widow's offering, starting in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all that she had to live on. Now again, if you've been around church a long time, you might be putting together the pieces and thinking, okay, so Charlie asked a young and experienced teacher to preach, and then he went out of town. And then it was Mark 12 about tithing. So next, Kenny's going to ask us all to pull out our phones, go to missiotempe.com, and increase our giving, and that's not what's going to happen, so don't worry. And actually, I think if the rich people in this story, if they had responded by running home and getting more money to put in the in the bowl, out of shame and guilt, that wouldn't have been what Jesus wanted anyway for this story. I think he's getting at, again, something a little bit deeper. So Jesus's hope in this story would be that we would look at the widow and see her as an example of a radically changed view of generosity. 
one that flows out of what we've already talked about, of loving God with all that we have and loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. And so there's this term that you, maybe you've heard uh, from some of us here uh, in Missio teaching, and it's this idea that God's kingdom, in a sense, is upside down from our perspective, the upside down kingdom of God, which basically means that Jesus, in his teachings, he flips a lot of our expectations on their head of what we think should be or what we expect him to teach. And here's one of those examples. I kind of see this story as a practical example of what Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes, where God's economy is just so different than what we understand. So in the upside-down kingdom of God, Jesus says that the widow's offering was worth more than the wealthy. And I don't think that he was just being poetic. I don't think that he was just talking nicely and saying something that like sounds kind of good. I think he really meant it from his point of view. There's more value in the generosity of the widow than there was in the generosity of the rich in this story. So why is that? Why do we think that is? So notice the two things that he points out about the widow. When the rich had given out of their wealth, the widow gave out of her poverty. And where the rich had given only a portion, the widow gave all that she had. The widow gave out of her poverty, and she gave everything she had to live on. So what does this mean for us? First, this idea of giving out of your poverty, generosity out of lack. The disconnect here is that the rich were giving only in an area where they already enjoyed abundance. But they're saying, oh, yeah, we got plenty. Let's throw it in. Um, tradition tells us that uh, in the temple courts where you would go to the treasury, there was a, a bowl, a metal bowl, shaped almost like a bell or, or trumpet, maybe. And this would amplify the sound out when you dropped coins in there. And so there's this sense that those that were dropping in a lot of coins, it's making this pretty big noise. And it, it is earning them greater reputation. And they're saying, yeah, we got plenty. Let's throw it in there. But the widow gives out of an area where she didn't have much. She didn't have anything. And I think this, this um, gets at me. This convicts me. Because I think in our culture of generosity, we set up the goal of, I'm going to make a lot in the future so I can give a lot away. Right? I think that's kind of the American view of generosity. And what Jesus is saying is, even in the present time, if you don't have much, that's when the generosity carries value. And it's not just talking about money. I think we all have areas of our life where we experience some level of poverty and maybe disconnect that word from finances for a moment. What is an area in your life where you don't have enough? And this is where Jesus calls us to radical generosity. This is where Jesus calls us to step out of our trust in our own abilities, resources, or um, our own pockets and trust that Jesus can do more than we imagine with what we have. So what does this look like? Look like? I want to start to wrap up with some stories. And I have three stories from people in our community and one story from elsewhere that 
speak to this idea of giving out of our poverty. So there's a, a young man who uh, has just welcomed home a newborn daughter. And I've been told, I don't know, but I've been told in these seasons of life, the two things that you can never have enough of are time and sleep. Yeah? Any parents? Yeah? Yeah, let's go. I got an amen. Time and sleep. So this person is impoverished in his time and his sleep. There's just simply not enough in his life of those two resources. But still he makes the conscious choice every week to spend hours standing out on a soccer field in 100-degree weather at 10 p.m., serving and loving teenagers, giving them quality coaching, not just in how to play the sport well, but how to be good young men. And he does that out of his own generosity. Second, a story of a leader who carries an immense weight and challenge that he is leading through so faithfully, but still he graciously listens and patiently walks a younger leader through the simplest of leadership challenges that this dude should just get on his own. But the older leader is gracious with his time and emotional energy, even when it feels like there's not enough. Third, there are actually two families in our community and in our extended community who already have their own challenges and fears and stressors and long-term questions, but they've chosen to rally around a specific family of almost strangers and care for kids who don't have a home. Some children for more than a year, others for almost a year, so that they can have a home filled with loving people, even in seasons where it just feels like there's not enough love, money, time to go around. This, these are examples, and there are countless more, some that are too personal to share, of people in our community who are giving out of areas of poverty. There's another story from a book. Um, it's a wonderful book. It's called Tattoos on the Heart. And a buddy of mine sent me this today. And it's a story by Father Greg Boyle. He runs Homeboy Industries in the LA area. And he writes this. He basically, is, his uh, mission is to care for uh, young men and women coming out of gang culture in different ways, provide jobs, provide health, whatever it is they need. So he's, he writes this. At 3 o'clock in the morning, the phone rings, and it's Caesar. He says what every homie says when they call in the middle of the night. Did I wake you? I always think, well, no, I was just waiting and hoping that you'd call. Caesar is sober, and it's urgent that he talks to me. I got to ask you a question. You know how I've always seen you as my father ever since I was a little kid. Well, I have to ask you a question. Now, Caesar pauses, and the gravity of it all makes his voice waver and crumble. Have I been your son? Oh, heck yeah, I say. And by the way, I censored that, so we didn't have another... <laughs> Another instance. Whew. Caesar exhales. I thought so. Now his voice becomes enmeshed in a cadence of gentle sobbing. Then I will be your son. 
and you will be my father, and nothing will separate us, right? That's right. In this early morning call, Caesar did not discover that he has a father. He discovered that he is a son worth having. The voice broke through the clouds of his terror and the crippling mess of his own history, and he felt himself beloved. God, wonderfully pleased in him, is where God wanted Caesar to reside. And this is a beautiful, simple story of a man giving out of something that he didn't want to. Like, he's, it's 3 a.m. But Caesar called, and he answered. And in this moment, Jesus met him in that phone call and showed him the value that he sees him with. And so that would be my encouragement to you, is to identify areas where you feel that you don't have enough, and maybe it is finances. And that's a tough one, right? Because you look at your budget sheet, and there's literally not enough. But what would it look like to be imaginative in the ways that you give of your time and your money with radical generosity, because we know who God is, we know what he has done for us, and he has called us to love him and to love others with all that we have. And now we, we know also that our generosity does not, have, does not go without an example. We know that our generosity is not something that we are doing for the first time. We know that there is one who has been generous to us in immeasurable ways. We know that Christ has given his own life so that we can enjoy grace and love and peace with the Father. We know that Christ in his own generosity laid down his life on the cross and we get to enjoy the good fruit of that generosity each week as we gather as a community and as we take these elements of communion. And so what I would hope for you is that... Um, you would see that God is real, that God is one over all things, and that because we hold on to that truth and we have total allegiance to who God is, we can uh, then create a system of understanding what we are to do in this world, how we can live with radical generosity to one another, how we can live on mission in our missional communities, in our neighborhoods, in our cities. But my biggest hope is that you would realize that, again, we have been loved with such great generosity. And so if you would stand with me, we're going to close with a practice that we do every week in communion. Now, we know that Jesus in his great love for us he died a death, a sinner's death, and he raised again a new life and resurrection. And so each week what we do is we come together and we break this bread and we take this juice as a community, remembering that good news that we get to share with one another and that we get to enjoy. And so in a moment, we're going to come through this line and take the elements. The Hamiltons will graciously uh, give you the bread and the juice. But before that, we do that, as a community, we declare this truth. We declare that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So in a second, we're going to say that all together. But I just, my hope and my prayer is that as we take these elements, we would remember that 
we are participating in the community of Christ and we are placing Jesus where he belongs as our king over all things. So if you would, let's say this together and then you can come and, and, and take communion. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Amen. Amen. Come and eat.